This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Well, um, you know, I, um, I wrote this book really for a broad audience, to be honest with you. I'm sure there's a sweet spot for people who are interested in pop culture and, and uh, behind the scenes of what's happening in sports and what's happening in entertainment. Um, and yes, it's filled with some great stories, stories that I never told before with Dwayne Johnson and Gordon Ramsay and, and Dick Clark and Simon Cowell and Magic Johnson and Wayne Gretzky. I, there's a lot of people in the book. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and I'm excited to welcome my pro- the program, my co-host, David Hollenbeck. David, thanks for stopping by. I know you're excited about our guest and introduce our great guest. I mean, just some of the projects he's worked on just blows me away, and some of the connects we I have run into in my career of doing over 14 years of interviews and so many celebrities. He has met some amazing people, and he's a celebrity in myself. For myself, I have to consider him that with some of the, the amazing people he's worked with. Go ahead, David, introducing our guest. Yeah, man, I, I am really excited about this. Arthur Smith, uh, we're going to talk about his upcoming book, Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Um, currently, I, you know, and to look at you, Arthur, it, it's hard to believe that you've been in showbiz for 40 years. I mean, <laughs> would you start when you were 10? Oh, thanks for thanks for that. No, you know, I worked for Dick Clark and and he gave me that special serum, you know, that Dick Clark serum, you know, the old America's oldest living teenager. So uh I, I don't know, I guess it's good genetics, but but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. I wow, mean, Dick Clark, it started with Dick Clark. Holy cow, go ahead, Dave, that's <laughs> your question. But yeah, see, talk about the list of people he knows, but go ahead, Dave, with your next question. No, I mean two hundred Dick got me my green card. So there's a whole story about that. But Dick got me my green card. So uh and I'm and you know, one of the most important mentors of my life. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean, I, I was just gonna touch on the 200 plus shows for 50 plus networks. Uh, I mean, you've created some of the longest running unscripted series in history, including Hell's Kitchen, uh, the seven-time Emmy nominee American Ninja Warrior. Um, I, I mean the list goes on and on, and I, I, <laughs> I'm just thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, the Titan Games with with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I mean, that's one of uh, Neil's buddies there. So no, he wore my knee pads. I wish he's, <laughs> I, you need to tell him that when I was down south uh, working in in Memphis uh, for when he before he was the Rock. But yeah, go ahead, go, go with your question, Dave. That's funny. <laughs> no, I I wanted to my first question. Uh, for Arthur is, um, who is this book for? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I um, I wrote this book really for a broad audience, to be honest with you. I'm sure there's a sweet spot for people who are interested in pop culture and, and uh, behind the scenes of what's happening in sports and what's happening in entertainment. Um, and yes, it's filled with some great stories, stories that I never told before with Dwayne Johnson and Gordon Ramsay and and Dick Clark and Simon Cowell and Magic Johnson and Wayne Gretzky. I, there's a lot of people in the book, but, you know, it is a memoir with a purpose. You know, I didn't, you know, take the greatest stories I've ever had or the funniest stories, although I think they're some of the greatest and some of the fun, funniest or at least most interesting. But the purpose is, is, is explaining what, what I believe um, is really important. Um, and it's been important in my life is that the power of reach. And that's why the book is called Reach. I believe when you reach, um, that's your chance at achieving your full potential. Um, I believe when you reach, you find out what you're capable of. Sometimes when you reach and you think it's sometimes outside of your grasp, you you actually find out that you can do it. Um, I believe when you reach, you realize the difference between a, a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. And so every story in the book um, is about some connection to this power of reach, something that I discovered. I was fortunate because I discovered it when I was very young. Um, it may not sound like it right now, but I was the shyest of all kids. I was incredibly shy. 
So shy, I was the kid my parents worried about. And something happened very early on in my life, and I talk about it in the book, um, when I was nine years old. And it it changed my life. And I was never the same. And I didn't, I was nine years old, so I, I wasn't consciously aware of what was happening. It was all subconscious. But it did lead me on this path. And this path, I mean, I grew up in Montreal. You know, I, there was no connection in the entertainment business. My mother was a housewife. My dad was a manufacturer. So there was no connection to the enter entertainment business. In fact, because I was so shy, television kept me company. Television was my friend. And so I would watch endless hours of television. And I still do. I am a TV-holic. My name is Arthur Smith, and I'm a TV-holic. I can't stop watching it. I love content. I consume it by the by the tons. And, you know, all this... Um, all this, like I said, played out. And when I look back through my life and I looked at, you know, what was the thing that I can draw from one thing to the next? It was this power of rage. And um, anyhow, that was a really long answer to a very short question. I apologize. No, I love shy it. Kids, we shy have kids not shy anymore. Parts. We have to have 16 parts, Arthur, for, for sure. I mean, you think about specifically the power of reach. I mean, I look at it like the experiences that we have in our lives. Now, I'm 50 years old now. You know, I was a former professional wrestler, former teacher. All the experiences I've had always constantly have tried to strive for more and more opportunities have come through taking chances, through going and developing relationships and looking at things. How would you define people that are not doing what you say in the name, the power of reach? What do you think it is? Is not having the highest expectations for yourself, settling for less? not knowing the possibilities that can be out there for people? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. You know, um, sometimes people overanalyze. I mean, I think, you know, so many of the breaks that I got, especially early on, I have to admit it came out of ignorance. I didn't know how the business worked. I just knew I wanted in. And so some of the things that I did, like my first job at CBC, um, you know, years ago, I grew up in Montreal and I was living in Toronto. I was still still in college, studying TV and film. I didn't know how the business worked, but I knew I wanted to work at CBC Sports. I'm a big sports fan. I love television first. Sports is my second love. And I literally camped outside someone's office for five or six hours. I didn't know how it worked. I knew I wanted to see him. I knew I didn't have an appointment. I knew I wouldn't. they wouldn't let me in. And I waited till he came out of the office and... I mean, had I known any better, had I known what I knew years ago, I would have probably never done this. But I was so ignorant that I thought, I've got to find a way to meet this guy. And I said, can I just, when he finally came out, I said, can I have 10 minutes of your time? He said, I'll give you five. And the five minutes turned into 90 minutes. And then at the end of it, he goes, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, that's a good lifelong goal. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. Ignorant. Once again, I am ignorant. And he goes, well, that's not the way it works. You have to work in, you have to be a PA and you have to work in local news and then you have to work your way around. And it was a whole, whole thing. I said, well, how long does that take? And he goes, fast track five years. And so um, when I heard that, I said, well, I'm, I'm not interested, ignorant person that I was. And, and that was it. And I said, okay. But a few weeks later, <laughs> I got a phone call from his boss. And I was I was brought back to Toronto. I actually went to Montreal to see my family. And I went, actually literally turned around the car. I got to Montreal, got this message on my answering machine, and then turned around, because I didn't have a cell phone because I'm old. It was way back in the 80s. Anyhow, I turned around, drove back to uh, drove back to Toronto, and I had this meeting with all the executives, the head guys at CBC Sports, kind of guys that I looked up to because I was in a, you know, dreamed of being a producer like them. And um, they ended up hiring me and they, I was this experiment and I ended up being a producer and I was very young and ended up directing, uh, being the replay director on Hockey Night in Canada, which in Canada is everything. And then produced the Los Angeles Olympics when I was 24. And then somehow I ended up as head of the sports division. I was president of CBC Sports. I was 28 years old. And all of this happened because I put myself out there, because I reached and not only did I reach with, you know, within that first meeting, but continually. And this is this has been the pattern. I believe we make our good fortune. And Neil, you're right. Sometimes, you know, maybe people overthink it. 
and and overanalyze it to the point that they get stuck in neutral. It's and too it's simple. Too it's simple. They want to look at these experts that say you need to have this in all place. Everything needs to be in place. BS. It's about who you know, going after it and asking and building and using your talents to what's your best your ability. People yeah. overthink things so much. They think they need a specific guru to you know, change things. And I got to follow this prescription plan. You talk to any famous person and I've talked to, you talked to a ton. I've talked to a ton. It isn't based on a specific prescriptive plan. They came up with it. They went for it and they kept grinding and that opportunity came. And then they took that opportunity for another opportunity. It wasn't like, you know how these coaches are out there, these business coaches, the other people, you got to have it specifically this plan. If you don't follow this plan, it's not going to work. That's not the case. It's about believing yep. And going after it and and doing things that are not like the average everyday person does. Am I right? Am I on the right track in looking at this reach thing? Yeah, I, yes, I, I think you are. I definitely think you are. I mean, I think that you know, um, listen, it just because you want something doesn't make it so. Just because you're reaching for it doesn't make you so. There are lots of stories in the book, and I talk a lot about some of the successes, but I talk about my failures too. But I, I believe everything happens for a reason. I believe the more you try, the luckier you get. And, and I believe um, that, that, like I said, that you don't, you don't achieve your full potential unless you reach beyond what you think you can do. And that's happened to me time and time again. I also, you know, believe that, and I, I, I've been blessed because I believe that it's much easier to reach from a strong foundation. And, you know, when you think of, um, you know, and when I talk, when I'm talking about that, I'm really talking about my parents because I had great parents and they, um, they were very supportive and they gave me the confidence and, you know, um, they gave me the confidence to reach. And all through my life, I, even though I lived thousands of miles, my, my parents lived in Canada. I lived in, I've been living in LA for 30 years. You know, we spoke every day and, and I went through, I went through a lot in my career. It was, you know, I was young and I was, uh, producing and directing, a it, you know, when I was very young and the pressure was pretty intense and my parents were always there for me. And now it's been my family. My parents are gone. Um, and um, and listen, uh, you know, I, I think about the analogy is like, you know, think about like when you're standing on top of a solid table and you're trying to change a light bulb. It's much easier to change the light bulb when the table is solid. Right. As opposed to a wobbly table that's not secure and you're trying to change the light bulb. And so, you know, it you know, it doesn't have to be your parents, it for some people, for me, I was blessed with parents. I had it in my house. So I was already, um, I already had a good base to stand on. And and um, and for some people like who, who aren't as fortunate, you know, um, it can come in other ways. It can come from friends, it come from siblings, it come from something. But it's very, it is very difficult when your your life away from what you're doing is not stable. There's no question about it. And and it's not impossible it's just easier so um i was fortunate to to be reaching from a strong foundation and it helped me it helped me tremendously and and that's why the book is dedicated to my parents and the book is dedicated to the five women in my life which is i i have two older sisters i have two daughters and my wife who's amazing and all of them um they keep me grounded and they keep me sane because i'm nuts i'm crazy like I, I have this restless thing you know it's funny you know, in my producing life, some of my, some of the qualities that help me make people crazy outside of my work, because I'm OCD, I'm incredibly impatient, um, and I'm restless. So at work, it really works well, because I believe, I believe impatient people get there faster. So, so I'm like, I'm always, always want things faster. You know, outside of work, it's you know, it's, I I can I can be challenging. I'm I'm I, I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad, but I'm I'm a little nuts. You know, my wife is the sane one, and she's amazing, and she she uh, she puts up with me. Our, so. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Go ahead, David. Your question. This is the kind of conversation that you know you could just have a, a cup of coffee. I come out to L.A. I definitely want to hang out one point when I'm in L.A. To, sure. to I'm six foot ten, by the way. Former pro wrestler, as I said, so I'm six ten. Big guy, you know, and uh, I got stories just like you, Arthur. But go ahead, David, your question. Well, you mentioned this event when you were nine years old. Uh, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing that? Is that when your dad brought your first TV home or? 
No, 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 no. It actually <laughs> happened. Um, it happened on the ice. As a true Canadian, I was playing hockey. And like I said, the, we had just moved five miles. We had moved from uh, um, five miles. That's That was it. From one suburb to another of Montreal. But for me, it was traumatic. This shy kid moving from the friends that I had into a new neighborhood. And I wouldn't leave the house. I was I was not I was not in a good way. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. And and uh, and I, I felt bad about it. I remember feeling bad about it, but I couldn't I couldn't shake it. And but I did play sports and I was I was a I was I, I, I was a defenseman because it was I, I didn't want to be in the limelight. And um, and they put me in a, they, they, they put me in a hockey league in this new neighborhood. And um, the, the, the coach looked at me and he said, um, we don't need any more defensemen. You're playing center. I said, no, 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 no. I'm a defenseman. And I was nine years old. So how can I argue with the coach? So I, I, I ended up playing center. And um, in my first game, I just survived. And in my second game, a crazy thing happened. I scored the winning goal of the game. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I had friends. All of a sudden, I said, well, maybe I should be putting myself out there. And I know it's such a weird thing, but I got to tell you, I mean it sincerely. That changed my life. I went on to become the leading scorer in the league. I don't think I ever scored a goal before that season. I was a defenseman who just did my job. I was one of the leading scorers in the league. And that led me to sports. And and, and I started to realize, you know what? I kind of like the limelight. I kind of like being in the spotlight. I kind of like all this. And and all of a sudden, confidence happens. And confidence such a, is such a big such confidence a big is thing. the youth thing. You could literally, Arthur. It's the bottom line. If you're not surrounded with the right people, and they bring you down, that destroys yes. everything around yes. you, and you don't. And when you figure that super genius, uh, one of my mentors, DJ Reynolds, talked about flow. You got to have flow around you. If you're not having lots of negativity, because you're going to have hard times. If you're going to try to strive for greatness. You're going to hit that wall. You're going to hit that wall many times. You got to have surround yourself with the right people around you because it's not the normal thing of a day to nine to five job. We're going through things and we can escape. The days are over. When you're trying to reach for greatness, whatever you do, you're going to have those tough times. You're going to have those, those, those moments where you want to give up, but you got to come back, but you got to have the people around you that believe in you. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and 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 that's the, the key thing. And I mean, you talk I'm sure what have you been when you've talked to people that have read the book so far Arthur or have had the conversations and and met with you, what do they say based on why you've written this book and talked told the story? What are the, your friends, your colleagues, people around you, even yeah. people who have written the books, yeah. have read the book so far? Well, the book's just out. So, okay. you know, it just came out recently. So, but there have been some people who've read it. And you know, I love my friends and family and, um, you know, I love their opinions and they all, they all love the book, but, but, but something happened to me and it was the first blessing, um, of writing the book. I was doing the audio, the audio book about a month ago and people have a choice to buy the book or not, right? You know, I want to buy it. There's people listening today. They're, they're going to either like what I'm saying or, or, or not. And they're, they have a choice to buy the book. The person who doesn't have a choice but has to hear the book is the audio engineer. He has no choice. He's got to sit there for four days, and it's his job. He's got to mix it. He's got to make sure the levels are there. And so for four days, you know, I'm, I met this guy, and, you know, there was, a, there was a, you know, someone from the publishing company listening, listening in, and I'm doing my thing, and I'm doing the, reading the whole book four days, seven hours a day, got it done. And I get out of the the soundstage and right before I leave, he comes up to me and he goes, I, th- I think you've changed my life. I think you've changed my life. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to push further. I realize that I'm limiting myself. I realize that I haven't reached in my life and listening to you for the last few days has changed me. I swear I got emotional. I gave the guy a hug. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I was like shaking when he said this to me because you know, it's like, it's this technician who, this is what he does. He listens to the books and mixes shows. And, and like he, like I said, he had no choice but to listen to me. So, um, so that got to me. And I'm, I'm, listen, I'm really hoping that the book is entertaining. And I think it is. And I mean, certainly it's, it's got a lot of interesting people and it's, you know, I have this great story with Magic Johnson of, 
that I did something with magic and 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 seeing him and 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 you know really telling people what the real magic is like. And the same thing with Dwayne and Dwayne Johnson and and Little Richard, I, who was wow. I got a crazy story of Little Richard. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting subject matter. And then by the way, there were stories about people who aren't famous who had an impact on my life as well. So I I hope it entertains people. I re, I'm really hoping it inspires people. And that's why when you know when you ask me the first question about who's it for, I really hope it's for everybody. I really do. I mean, I mean, I, I hope every. I think people are into you know the pop culture and and uh, you know of it all. Um, and and uh, certainly if if you're a budding producer, I just was at a television convention. I just did a keynote at a television convention this morning, and yes, that was my sweet spot because these are people who want to work in the industry. But I'm really hoping it's really for more than that. I don't. The things that I talk about, yes, they're examples from sports and from the entertainment business. But they're really, you know, examples that I think you can apply to your life, to anyone's life, if you want to grow your game, at least from my perspective. Okay, good, David. Another question. I I really enjoyed this, Arthur. Just totally amazing. But go ahead, David, your next question. I'm going to have one, hit one more question for Arthur after that. Because I have a half hour show and sometimes it's 15 minutes and, you know, it just all varies. I I, I created this thing and I'm happy I created it. That's, that's, that's my thing. And uh, go ahead, David, with your question. So the thing that I want to know is how you came up with, I survived a Japanese game show. Well, talk about a reach. Um, (laughs) You know, when I went to, when I talked to ABC about it, it was like, they looked at me like I had two heads. So um, there was an executive there that at ABC at the time who was into all things Japan. And we started talking about, you know, television in Japan, which is completely different. Um, the game shows in particular that w- of what goes on in Japan. And we started to s- say, well, you know, what would happen if we took 16 Americans and they didn't know why they were on a show. They just knew they were on a competition show and brought them to Japan. And, um, and the interesting thing, um, you know, he was, he, he got it. Um, he was scared of it. And, and so was I, but we started, he said, why don't you write a, a show Bible, which is basically the, you know, in television, you know, before they give you a pilot, it's kind of like, they call it paper development, basically. And we wrote this Bible, never, ever going to Japan to do any work because they didn't give us any money. It was a small fee to do paper development. We wrote this Bible, it's like a 40 page Bible on what the show would be, what the challenges would be. And I actually was on location shooting Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. I remember where I was. I was in the control room. I got a phone call from ABC. And, and, he, and it was this guy, Johnson's Day. And he says, I just read the Bible. So did Steve McPherson, who's president of the network. And we're laughing hysterically. Um, can you do this show? And I go, yeah, of course. And, and this was like February. He goes, we need it on the air in June. I go, I, I, I could, could, did you say June? I said, I. I've never been to Japan. I just like, this is, I don't even know if it's possible. I need a little. And then they said, listen, it's the NBA playoffs and it's the summer and it's the final and we want to promote it. And I said, the end of June? They go, yes, the end of June. I said, okay, it's marginally better, but fine. Can I call you back tomorrow? I called them back. Reach, reach. I just, I called back the next day with not much more information and said, yeah, we can do it. And um, it was challenging and difficult and and special because we actually pulled it off as a matter of fact we had a couple of people who were working on the show who quit because they thought they were going to be out of work because they never thought we were going to get into production they actually quit the show and i kept saying it's going to happen we're going to japan and sure enough we shot the show it was an amazing journey um it, it the story is because it is such an interesting crazy reach it's in the book um and the show goes on to win the format of the year. It won the Rose Door Award as format of the year. And, you know, it wasn't our biggest hit. We did a couple of seasons of it. Um, the novelty started to wear off, but man, oh man, what a, what a journey and what a, what a crazy trip. And like I said, from this ridiculous conversation at a network to something, right. I believe that people crave freshness. Yes. I really do. I really believe in the, in, you know, in original programming and original, we're, we're you know, networks tend to do derivative stuff. They tend to do copycat stuff yeah. and it drives me nuts because I never, I, I don't think social media is doing that now too. Social media is doing it as well. Social yeah. media is doing those copycats and those derivatives and those different things. So, and you're 
talking about original. So here's the last question I have for you. So what are the other projects? What's what what are what are Arthur Smith's goals moving forward? He's accomplished all these things in TV. You got a lot more years ahead of you. That you're going to be doing this. Do you have a like a, a goal that you want to reach? <laughs> so look at that. I brought up the whole reach for Arthur. It's a good word. It's a good word. Are you going to be the president of some organization someday, or are we looking at you running a TV organization? To no, that, uh, definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. Listen, I've been there. I've, I've, I was the head of program production and news at Fox Sports. I was a senior executive at Universal. I learned by doing those jobs that that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I like making stuff. I'm a maker. And by the way, that's why the book has been such a pleasure, because the book is an outlet for me. I'm all about creating and trying to do something. The book represents a chapter in my life where I'm trying to mentor more, inspire more, give back pay it forward. As a matter of fact, all the proceeds from the book are going to a foundation that I set up called the Reach Foundation. And the Reach Foundation gives money to six charities. All of these charities lift people up in some way. And, and that's what I want to spend my time on. I'm still going to produce shows. I like the action too much. And my wife won't let me stay in the and house. And what shows are you producing right now? Um, Hell's Kitchen 22nd season, American Ninja Warriors on its 15th season. We have a show on TLC called Welcome to Plathful. We actually have a new show that was just announced. That's from your old life. It's uh, we're working with the WWE um, and a show called Future Future Stars, or I think it's Future Stars. We keep changing the title, maybe Future Superstars, and it's about the recruiting process of of the WWE. And now you know they recruit these high level athletes and they bring them to a training camp and yeah. they do it right before WrestleMania. Right. And you're probably familiar with this. And then, and they train them. And 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 it, we we shot seventy percent of the show already. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's kind of like the Hard Knocks, right? You know, the Hard Knocks, the HBO show of WWE. It's yeah. a completely different thing in the sense that, and that, it's know, a lot different than the days of MTV and Tough Enough. So again, I was yeah. in the nineties in the the Attitude Era. And what's sad about professional wrestling is if you're going to go get the world class athletes to do it. It's going to work. It's going to work. That's WWE's shtick. It's going to bring professional wrestling back. That's my yeah. prediction. At one point, somebody, and especially you remember in Canada, how popular pro wrestling was. Sure. I worked for the, and, and a lot of guys from Canada, uh, I, I ended up working with back in the day. I believe that it's amazing that these broadcast athletes, but the best professional wrestlers are what the fans enjoy and these things, and it's interesting. But I'm in, I'm intrigued by it for sure. I've had Triple H on my show. I've had Stone Cold on my show working yeah, with NBC. Yeah. I've worked, you yeah. know, just a six minute interview. But you know, the tour thing. But I yeah. know the, uh, some of these guys that were closest this, and I think it's going to be interesting to see where pro wrestling goes. Pro wrestling misses the showmanship, the story, the yeah. flares, all that. You think that will oh, ever be created again? You know what I mean? Always, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And Neil, you when you come to LA, you and I have we have to go out for sure. Because we, 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 we can talk some we can talk some good stories. I have about. some big news, big things coming for me. I know not to the level you're at yet, but I'm not giving up. I'm 50, and I got I got one thing that I have is connections, and there's opportunity. And I I love interviewing people, and I've done over 9,000 plus interviews. I'm number 11 celebrity podcaster world according to Feedspot now, and I want to go next further because I can have a conversation with anybody anytime anywhere. It's just my gift. And I enjoy That's it. Great. That's and, great. That's and, great. And, and I teach people like David how to do this. And I teach other people as well. What I would say to you is pro, this pro wrestling idea, hopefully please let your publicist know to get me on the uh, the list when you're going to do the promotion of it. Any of yeah. your projects, I'm happy to do yeah. anything with Hell's Kenton, American Ninja Warrior. I've worked with them before. I've had a lot of your, your top stars on and different things. And I also had somebody who's one of the other producers. It'll come to me in a second. I was out. Uh, so I probably that's how you got on my list to interview. But the best place people can go right now and purchase your book, where can they go? Uh, books are available anywhere. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, your local bookstore, any anywhere you would normally buy a book. So, um, but but thank you, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, you're you're gonna love the you're gonna love the WWE show. It's really it's so good. I and so authentic and so pure and stuff like that. And 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 by the way, it's. They they spend and you you would appreciate this and who am I telling you know way more about this than I do. There's there's this whole element where they work on the showmanship and they work on the promo and they work on the character and you see that process 
and it's great. And every and everybody's in it. I mean, Triple H is in it, and Lemiz is in it, and you know that. And by the way, I had such a good time working with the WWE. I remember when Tough Enough. Tough Enough wasn't our show. We have a, we've done a lot of shows, and we're like in terms of sports entertainment. You know, we've done more than anybody else. And I always wanted to do something with the WWE. And uh, and this was the one I went to them and said, you know, instead of bringing Tough Enough back, they, you know, the last Tough Enough wasn't very good. Um, and um, but but I liked the show when it was on years ago. Um, and and I said, you know, you know what you need to do? You need to do something really authentic and really show the process. And you guys already do this. Anyhow, let us come in and, and just follow these stories. Um, and uh, it, it turned out great. We're still shooting it because. They, you know, 10 of them, 10 of the people went to camp, got contracts. And then when they get the contracts, it's so emotional. It's so incredible when they find out that they're going to train in Orlando. It's it's like they won the lottery. And then now we're following um, the select few in Orlando. That's the last part of the, of, of, of the shoot that's going to happen over the next few months. Well, fantastic. So, Let me know when that uh, tour happens and all that stuff, the interview and all that stuff. And some of the guys that were, you know, like Adam Pierce, if you ran into Adam, Adam and I, we uh, worked down when he was 19 and I wrestled him in Grand Rapids, Michigan, then hit with Rhino. And then we'd head out and we work a town out in Canada, <laughs> everywhere. So I did the Indies, retired in Germany, and I lost my voice now. <laughs> That's unbelievable. But best place again, Arthur's work. Get the book anywhere. I appreciate have, have you guys having me on. Um, I hope it inspires people. It's all money's going to charity too, so it's kind of nice. Um, but uh, I think there's some some good takeaways. So once again, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it, Arthur. Uh, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi everyone. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome my co-hosts uh, David Hall I'm back. David, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest today. A lot of interesting stories we're going to have in this conversation. How are you, David? Yes. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again. And uh, and I'm really excited about our, our guest, Juliet Watt. Um, she's a new author. Uh, I, I got to watch her TEDx talk uh, there from, what, 2018, um, about compassion fatigue, which I, I'd like to touch on a little bit, just based on my background with the fire department. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, her book and some of her experiences. So thank you so much, Juliet, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So David, you hit the first question. Go ahead. All right. Well, um, I I'd like to touch on, I, I read about your escape from the civil war in Beirut and, yes. and I would love for you to maybe just give us a little, uh, background on that and and how you escaped well Beirut is if you look at Beirut is in Lebanon and if you look at the actual situation of the country it's in a very um precarious position because it's bordered by Israel on one side Syria on the other so what had happened just a tiny bit of back history what had happened was when the Palestinians were rousted out of uh, what is now Israel they became refugees and they scattered and Lebanon took a great deal of them in as refugees, as guests of the country. The problem was that Lebanon at that time was run by a Christian government and it was a very she-she place to go. You know, they called it the Paris of the East. And so <clears throat> the president, Frangia, did not want any tourists to see the ghettos that he had put the Palestinians in. And he so he they were all hidden away. And you did not know where they were. You know, you might run into them in the dark, but you didn't know. And they were all stuffed away. And you can't really do that. You know, eventually the rage, the, 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 the disease of being suffocated like that. Yeah. And they started, Yasser Arafat then decided he would come to Beirut and be with them. And that's when it all started, because he thought it'd be a jolly good idea to fire pot shots to Israel because they were right there. So they were literally shooting mortars over to Israel and killing whoever happened to be in the way. And the Israelis would have none of that. So they came over flying really low. I saw them one day, I was looking out of my apartment window and these three aircraft flew by about 200 feet off the water. And I went, hmm, that's the wrong flag on the tail. 
And so um, basically they landed, they cleared out all the Palestinians as best as they could. It was a um, pretty bad annihilation of as many as they could get a hold of. But this stirred the pot and thus turned it into a civil war that followed because then you had Christians against Muslims. And whereupon the they it had been mainly Christian and the Muslims were in sort of a lower category, unfortunately. They were the busboys, they were the waiters. And all of a sudden the pot just boiled over, you know, and you just you can't suppress a people that long and not have problems. And civil war ensued, and it was dreadful because you didn't know who was who, because they were all Lebanese, they were all people you know. So brother would turn against brother, and it was just awful. I was allowed out at night because I was a cabaret singer. So I had my little motorcycle and I had a curfew permit. But um, I knew as the war got worse and worse and worse, I mean, you would walk down the street and the mortar would fly right over your head and bomb the building and you had to duck and cover. I lost just about every friend I had um, because young men were deciding that they would arm themselves with a gun and become soldiers. And, you know, they're not trained. Um, it, it was really, really terrible. I've never witnessed anything like it. So I had a friend, everybody, you have a friend who has a friend, you know, and um, he managed to somehow procure a taxi cab and the airport was open spasmodically. Every now and again, it would open and you didn't really know how long it was going to stay open for. So we found out through a friend of a friend of a friend that it was going to be open for two hours on this particular day. So he put me in the taxi cab. I laid on the floor at the bottom of the cab and uh, we went to the airport and, and the cab was shot at multiple times. And for some reason we were okay. Got to the airport pretty much as the doors were closing and I got inside the airport and got to the, to the desk and uh, he was waving goodbye to me. And I knew, I knew I would never see him again. He was a dear friend, but yes, it was pretty hairy. And where was your family at this time? <laughs> well, uh, my father died when I was 10, so he wasn't there. And my mother was um, crazy. And she, I'm being polite, she was in, I sort of got away from my mother, who was crazy. I mean, in the literal correct sense of the word, the medical sense of the word. So I got away from her. She was at that time in uh, Istanbul, where we lived. And um, she would come back and forth to Beirut frequently because she thought it was great fun. She would get on the bus and the bus would take her from Turkey through Syria to Lebanon. And she thought that was great fun because there was copious amounts of alcohol on the bus. So mother would arrive completely sloshed. But she was in Istanbul when I got out and um, being crazy, mother decided that she'd pop back to Beirut because she put a watch into the jewelers for repair. So my crazy mother when I got to London, goes back into Beirut and gets stuck in there. And uh, she gets out. I'm, To be honest, I'm not sure how, but I do remember a phone call with her where I could hear mortars in the background and she was in her friend's apartment and they were having tea with the guerrillas who had shown up, the, uh, you know, the serious assassins had shown up at the front door to find out who was in this apartment. My mother invited them in for tea. She said they looked tired. And... And you, you talk about your relationship with her in your TEDx talk, and I'm sure you talk about her in your book. I do. But uh, amongst other things, I mean, you talk about your time at, at the Playboy Club, mm -hmm. uh, your time uh, working on soap operas. Uh, I mean, you've got this incredible background. Yeah. Can you can you tell me a little bit about uh, your book and and who is your book for? Mm, good question. I think I, I didn't really want to write it in the beginning, to be honest, because I thought these stories were so incredible and they're all absolutely true. I mean, I've toned down a, a couple of them a little bit and I thought, well, no one's going to believe this because one human being can't go through this legitimately. And I did. And then I thought of it in a different context. And I thought, well, who would benefit from these stories? And and I figured out that basically, if you are going through any kind of crisis, like I've been through a lot, you have to look at it as something you need to get through, get to the other side and, and finish for yourself. There's a situation I had in 
Belgium, which I don't know if you know about. Do you know about that situation in Belgium? Um, I, I don't know. Okay. This is pretty important. And forgive me, it's it's a little bit. I was raped really badly. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. And that could have been the most damaging thing that ever happened to me. But I was, I was only 22, I think. He was a pimp. He was nobody. Um, and he got into my room while I was singing at this cabaret lounge. And um, that happened. And it was pretty terrible. But then I decided, okay, if I don't do something about this, if I don't complete this story, it is going to ruin my life for the rest of my life. And I know so many women. You know, I, I, I have friends that have, of course, known Mr. Cosby. And I know what that did to them and what Hefner did to people. And I didn't want to end up as one of those. So I decided I would go out, catch him, put him in prison, which I did. I found him. I had him arrested. We went to court. I represented myself in French, which was incredible. And um, I just, he was sentenced to 15 years. And I had this great sense of accomplishment and it's a shame that that can't happen more often. I mean, I was in a very small town, so it was a little easier for me to find him, you know, being what he was. But I think that's why I'm completely undamaged by it, because I had the whole thing wrapped up. I took care of business. I found him and put him away. And I felt tremendous sense of pride. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to say to women that nothing should ruin you. There's always a way that you, nothing should break you. Right. Nothing should, should ruin your life. There's always a way that you can find a solution or find a purpose to resolution. And, and that really is the theme of the book. My mother, who was a narcissistic, clutched onto me, as you know, from the Ted talk. I mean, mm -hmm. I really did do her shopping. Oh, to wow. the store from 3000 miles. It was ridiculous. Um, and, I mean, and there was that. And then there was a situation that I had in Switzerland where I was abducted, unbeknownst to me, um, in England uh, back in the 70s. Young girls would go missing because the Arabs had decided they would descend upon London. Um, oil was now very prolific. And so they descended upon London and they would just take girls. And they had girls procuring girls for them and unfortunately i got unwittingly involved in this and uh, so i escaped um from this hotel in lausanne in switzerland and to be honest i actually don't know if i killed a man I'm not sure about that i might have in getting out oh my so my so basically dealing with all this how do you are able to share all this, to rewrite this, to relive a lot of this in this book. That's got to be challenging, right? To put this trauma, so much challenges, and then put it all in a book, and now everyone knows about what you've gone through. Um, good question. I was very proud of how I handled everything. I mean, I was face-to-face -face with some really impossible situations, but I am very proud of the way that I handled them. And I'm very proud that I didn't end up like my mother, which I could have easily done. And I know how to ask for help. And that's a very, very big thing, which I also wanted to share the fact that I did reach out eventually and, and, and get help because I was turning into my mother. How I did all that writing, I have an extraordinary memory. And I remember pretty much everything uh, with great clarity. And I think that's just a gift. Um, I, I, I'm very grateful for that. But as I said, when I sat down to write it, I thought, what, where, <laughs> where on earth do I begin? And I thought, well, I better begin at the beginning, you know? And the, does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yes? That totally makes sense. All right, go ahead, David, your next question. Yeah, I am. Um... <clears throat> I wanted to touch on your, your TEDx talk uh, okay. because it, 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 it touched me, you know, you're, you're talking oh, about you. compassion fatigue yeah. and uh, I, you mentioned Dr. Figley at uh, Tulane university who, who coined that phrase yes. and how he 
came about coining that phrase was he was studying nurses and firefighters and people, you know, that were yes. serving the public in, in traumatic situations. And, yes. um, you know, many of the things that I talk about in, in my book and uh, on another podcast is, um, you know, mental health with regards to PTSD and veterans and, and first responders. Yes. And there are some some parallels with compassion fatigue and PTSD. Uh, can can you talk a little bit about that and your experience and how you, you maybe some advice for people that may be struggling with this? Uh, that's yes, and thank you, David, for bringing that up because it's an extremely important topic for civilians, for want of a better word, because PTSD is normally associated with firefighters, nurses, um, and people in the business of caregiving or helping uh, soldiers or that see devastating things. Nobody thinks about the general public. Nobody thinks about the housewife at home who had a dream maybe when she was a teenager to be something, be somebody, uh, be a photographer on a world tour, work for National Geographic or something. But all of a sudden now she's a housewife and her job is to be a housewife and grandma's there because grandma has some dementia and her day is spent looking after grandma taking care of the kids feeding the husband when he comes home all very noble activities but what no one realizes is what that is doing to that woman's mind and we are not built to sustain the kind of stress that we are being put through today it's too much and when I talked to Dr. Figley, because I was actually how I came about it, I was asked if I knew anything about compassion fatigue to do a talk on it. And I said, no. Um, and I, and the, the person asking me said, well, why don't you look it up and see what you think? And I looked it up and I thought, well, that's odd. I'm all those things, but I'm just, I haven't been in the army. Yes, I've been in Beirut, but mm, it's not that you know, and so I found Dr. Figley, called him up, and we had a very, very long discussion about it. And he said, well, he was one of those very professor, very serious, not, you know, not fun, but very serious. <laughs> and I, and he said, tell me a bit about your life and, and tell me about your mother. And I did, I told him pretty much what she was and how she had this stranglehold on me. And um, I didn't know how that happened. And he said to me at the end of when I'd explained, he said, I'm surprised you're alive, actually. And I sort of laughed it off rather flippantly. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? And he said, I really am seriously surprised you're alive. You have chronic PTSD, you have trauma, and you have extraordinary grief. He said, you need to see somebody. And I was like, what? You know, and then I started to dig a little further and then I did some more research. And then I started talking to people like firefighters and nurses. Then I started talking to regular folk, folk I knew. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also secondary traumatic disorder, which is when you are receiving it from somebody else. So you're looking after someone with dementia or, or who has some kind of physical challenge, who's your child or whatever it may be, you start to take on the symptoms and the feelings and the depression of your person you're caring for. So it's a trans, it's a symbiosis of transmission that comes into you and all of a sudden you're experiencing the same dreadful, awful feelings. And suicide is very, very high on that. And what else is very interesting is one of the number one group of people that have compassion fatigue at its very worst are veterinary surgeons. That's hmm. the level of suicide amongst vets is higher than anything. It's like second under veterans and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, not from the animals, from the people. The wow. people that blame them that their dog died because they didn't bring it in in time and that kind of thing. So it's not the animals that gives them that depression. It's the people. So I dug, dug, dug. And, and, and I thought, well, nobody talks about this. Nobody talks about this amongst regular folk. I have it. Now I have a name to it. Now I know why I feel the way I feel, which is nothing like I used to be. You know, I had changed and my mother had passed away. And 
the relief of mother passing away, and I know that sounds dreadful, I apologize, but let me tell you, it was a total relief. She passed away and I was like, oh, I'm done with the shopping. I'm done with the this, but then it was like the relaxation. You know what it's like when you relax after something stressful, you catch yeah. a cold. Or, yeah. you so, know, so what did you see of symptoms for PTSD for yourself? Tell us about that a little bit. Depression, mm -hmm. feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the point? No ambition. My ambition was gone. I mm -hmm. didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to mm -hmm. leave my house. Um, I didn't really care much about how I was looking. Um, I didn't care much about anything. The only thing that kept me sane was my animals. I personally never contemplated suicide um, just because, but uh, it, it's a terrible, terrible feeling of real hopelessness and helplessness and not knowing what on earth is wrong with you. Why have you changed? Why have you turned into this unhappy person? And nobody has done the research. I mean, when you're a soldier, you know why. You've been in battle. When you're a firefighter, you know why. When you're a nurse or a hospital worker during, like during the COVID, there's a reason. It, the worst is when you feel it and there's no reason until I dug, I had a therapist, I mean, talked, and she said, you have chronic PTSD, the therapist did. And I said, from what? She said, your mother, the trauma. Mm -hmm. and So and any type of tra serious traumatic things that have happened to you in your life, it, it makes it a little bit of a challenge to go, I mean, a real big challenge. And what you're hoping people from this book and they can really feel the pain and the challenges that happen and go from it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, there's lots of color in it. There's lots of fun stories. You know, there's Cat Stevens, which is lovely. Um, there's there's fun stuff. But there's also this serious side that I survived. And it's a book about survival, really. And a survival with a triumph at the end. Because my life today is thanks to everything I've done since then and worked on and figured out how to fix this. Doing that TED talk was extremely therapeutic because all of a sudden I got this barrage of messages about, oh, I feel that way. I've never understood why I feel that way. And that was greatly fulfilling. And I'm hoping that when people read the book, they go, wait a second, that sounds like my mother. Ooh, yes, my mother did that. Or, well, yes, somebody took my animal away from me and didn't, didn't tell me why. And all these things, I would like there to be that recognition. I would like them to feel that I'm their friend and I've written down something that we've been through maybe together and they're not alone. And that is the most important thing, that they're not alone. So that, that, that's tremendous. Go ahead, uh, David. I mean, but I mean, I, I, I think you're a hero. As David oh, has shared certain of his mental health challenges, David, you can share a little bit more and ask another question. I, I, I wish we had more time. We're going to be uh, finishing up in about nine minutes, but it's such a great interview. I know David will like to we'll have a part two, but go ahead, David, with the next question. But really bring in the whole uh, mental health situation that's going on. Go ahead. Yes. Well, the, the question that is in the front of my brain right now is, the title of your book, In Between the Magic, My Life from Playboy Club to Beirut and Beyond. Mm -hmm. the, the part, In Between the Magic, what does that mean to you? I had this saying, and I have this saying still, when I'm in a really tough predicament and I don't have a solution and it looks pretty rough, I go, well, I better get making me some magic. And, and it's been a little phrase that, you know, I better make some magic here because it's not looking too good. So in between the magic is the story. But the magic is those moments where I caught the guy, put him in prison. I got out of being abducted, you know, because I just, I had this feeling of, I can do this. I can get myself out of this. I'm going to make myself powerful. I'm going to make magic happen. And it's extraordinary, actually, David, what you can do when you absolutely set your mind to it. And I know that's a, a very well-coined phrase, but when you just become tunnel-visioned and you go, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, 
you can actually make it happen. There's, I don't know, I mean, energy, I don't know what it is, but but I've done that so many times. I have made magic happen. And I have tried and I still do encourage people to do it. You know, whenever somebody says to me like, well, I don't know, don't say I don't know. You do know because you can do. You just have to get real focused and real purposeful about it. And lots of people kind of don't want to put that kind of energy out because it, it takes a bit, you know. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That that title, it just, and what it means to you is exactly what it meant to me when I read it. Awesome. I was like, well, that makes so much sense. You know, there there's all these peaks and valleys in our life. Yes. And when we find ourselves in that valley, if that's the only thing that we're thinking about, we're going to miss the anticipation of the next great thing or the memory of how beautiful it was before you found yourself in that valley. And that experience in that valley, in, the, in those dark times, can be the place where you find purpose yes. and and make the next bit of magic yes and 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 the other thing i i always say is yes i can and people go well you know maybe no 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 yes i can i wanted to fly an airplane i decided that i would learn how to fly an airplane when i was 40 something and people went well why why do you want to fly an airplane because i do and i will and i learned how to fly an airplane now the first and then you and then you taught people and then I taught people how to fly an airplane. Yes. And then I did rescue. I transported wow. animals. I worked for an animal rescue, uh, Best Friends Animal Society, who are fabulous. Wow. And I rescued animals all through Hurricane Katrina. I said, yes, I can. I can just do this. You were just able to do it. Now you're showing people, guess what? After you went through and overcame everything, you can help others and you need yes. to be able to help others in so many ways. So and I think that's so powerful. Where's the best place people can find information on your purchase your book? Where can they go? Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble. Um, my website is julietwatt.com. Um, I do do coaching on compassion fatigue for folk. I've been doing that ever since the, the TED talk. But uh, yes, the book is is available now. Um, and I have actually completed the audio book. And uh, because it's audible and they take a little time, that will be coming out, I think, in two or three weeks. So I will post on all the social media when that is available. Well, we appreciate it so much. It was such great information, wasn't it, David? Yeah, this was right. awesome. Thank you so much, Julia. Great stuff. Thank you. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones. Today's guest is Alana Proust. She's the founder and CEO of Recast City, a nationally recognized consulting firm working with city, community, and business leaders across the U.S. to revitalize cities by integrating space from small-scale manufacturers. Ilana is passionate about her work turning downtowns into vibrant economies, so these cities become great places to live, work, and visit. Her book, Recast Your City, How to Save Your Downtown and Small-Scale Manufacturing, is a must-read for people and organizations responsible for downtown reinvestment. A visionary in community development, Alana Proust is a highly sought speaker at prestigious events, including the 2023 National Main Street Conference, Northeast Maker Summit, and TEDx. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Um, so tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how, what was your journey to kind of start Recast City? What was your drive and passion behind that? So my passion has always been about great places. I have this sort of core belief that everybody deserves to live in a great place. And we know historically we have not invested in places equally. We've not invested in people equally. And I grew up in the D.C. area in the 80s. And it's a really, it was a really clear message that certain places 
um, were getting investment and some places weren't. And so the, the core of my belief in my work has always been everybody should get to live in a great place, however they define it, not based on my definition or your definition, but based on their own community of definition. And I worked in the field for a long time in community development, policy change, research. I was the numbers and maps kid at the beginning. Uh, that's how I broke into the field. And over the years, I realized we kept talking about great places and we kept talking about jobs, housing balance, and we never talked about the people. And we never talked about um, if what kinds of jobs and what kinds of businesses made the biggest difference for a neighborhood to not only be a great place, but to be economically resilient, to include the people who live in that neighborhood now, um, and to actually help them build wealth as a neighborhood changed. And so I went through this sort of exploratory stage and all the way back in 2013 and was trying to figure out what kinds of businesses made the biggest difference. And I hosted a series of events in DC called In the City. And I looked at tech and I looked at food businesses and I looked at transportation startups. That this is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. 